This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today we're talking with Don Don Myricks, former Deputy Director of the CIA of Directorate of Science and Technology. Prior to that role, Myricks served as Deputy Director of the Office of Director of National Intelligence for Acquisition, Technology, and Facilities. Myricks is a two-time recipient of the Presidential Rank Award, one of the most prestigious awards in federal career service. Uh, first, Don, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm greatly honored to be here. I love the community that you serve and I love the work that you do. So uh, I was, uh, really, I'm really delighted to be part of this today. Don, let's start off with, uh, you, know, the, you know, this show's about leadership. So can you describe your leadership style? I have always talked about servant leadership and I actually wrote um, the, I'll say the statement of what servant leadership looks like in my last job as you mentioned, at the CIA. So that I would describe my leadership style as servant leadership. Do you ever alter your approach depending on the situation or audience? I mean, you know, let's face it, there's there's not a lot of, um, a lot of times you're at the table and, and no one else looks like you as a woman leader in this, uh, in the technology field. So have you ever faced a situation where you've had to alter it or, or a change of direction a little bit to make things happen as a leader? Uh, so that's a really good question. I don't think I've done it based on gender. I think I've done it based on um, aligning uh, uh, agendas so that we focus on the right things and we can find common ground. I will say that as a young person, and I'm not saying as a young female person, but just as a young person, particularly when you're dealing with um, leadership in government, regardless, and I, I have DOD as well as IC experience, it really is about getting to being recognized as bringing value. And so as a young person, you, you reach um, people in different ways than you do. You know, when I show up now with my, you know, white hair and, and wrinkles, um, the default is that I probably know something. As a young person, I felt like I really had to earn my way a lot. And that wasn't so much gender-based as it was um, just demonstrating bona fides and expertise. So do you moderate based on the... Um, the audience? Absolutely. Uh, but I think that's all part of the seasoning and the experience. And I'll say wisdom, if you can claim to have such things at this point in your career, of being more interested in accomplishing mission and joining agendas than you are in, uh, you know, who's the big dog at the table or anything else that might be percolating in people's in the back of people's minds. So, yes, I moderated my style, but that was really about getting the job done. And not so much, I think, about um, my gender, but I do acknowledge that age definitely makes a difference in how you're perceived. I can can only imagine some of the challenges that you faced in some of your roles. Have you ever faced an obstacle? Can you describe an obstacle that you faced and, and actually how you led the team through it? Yeah. Um, so one of the great things about leadership is that you get better as you go along and sometimes you learn the hard way um, what does and doesn't work. Uh, there have been instances where I um, had to go over my boss's head. There was a particular instance, and I was a very young engineer, my first um, 
my first line job, I'll say, that I really felt like we were doing work for the government. I won't say who I was working for at the time, but we were doing work for the government. And I felt as though people were charging to my my particular job that I was responsible for that weren't actually working on it. And so my sense of integrity and um, the characteristics of leadership was such that I went to my boss about it and he basically said, well, I don't have any other jobs to put these people on and you have extra, you know, budget, um, which I thought was remarkable. The good news was he was candid. The bad news was that that still constituted what I thought was inappropriate charging. So I went over his head um, to his boss and I told him I was going to do so because I really felt very strongly that um, the fact that the customer had been benevolent and given us money in case money shouldn't mean that we spent that uh, because we needed coverage, because there was an overhead function for people that needed coverage. So that was one of those seminal moments in sports with, um, with your, your throat in your heart. Uh, and and I, my sense of integrity was such that I felt like I needed to tell him that I was going to do that um, so that he wasn't surprised if he got a phone call. And, it, and I will say that it all worked out in the end, but I guess the moral of the story is part of being a good leader is being willing to have the tough conversations. I wouldn't suggest that um, going over your boss's head is your is your first line of defense, uh, probably not even your third line of defense. But if it's something that you really think um, compromises who you are as a person and as a leader, then you have to be willing to have those co tough conversations and be prepared to be transparent about it. Um, but also uh, in a position that it's clear that you're going to be unequivocal. Um, and that was uh, it, it formed me. I've only had to do that twice in my career, but it made me, I'll say, more able to have the other hard conversations and more fearless when it when it happened to me personally. Don, you, you've probably had a chance to work with so many great leaders over the uh, decades of experience that you've had. And any leader in particular that comes to mind that in the past that pro provided you with some really important lessons? Uh, yes. And I'll say that very often in the moment, um, based on your level of experience, you might not recognize it at the time. It might feel like um, counseling that you're not ready for. But there are a couple, if I could, that I'll point out and and people that really um, poured into me, I'll say, because I think that's a mark of a great leader that I felt very engaged in, and I believe that they were interested in my good um, ultimately and, and weren't trying to score points or do whatever. Um, and also, by the way, I'll tell young people that it's really important that you pick your leader as well as be selected to work for them. But to go back to your original question, uh, the very first person I had that sponsored me and did it coming out of college was an African-American woman at the first company that I worked for. And she took me under her wing, basically through the interview process and through the hiring process, and then mentored me once I took, I ended up accepting the job and was just amazing. And I was so young and so inexperienced that I had no idea what that was worth until I got a little perspective. I just thought she was the greatest person ever. And of course, everybody would take care of their employees that way and be personally engaged and make sure that I got, you know, my movement went smoothly and things like that. And imagine my surprise. I don't know why I believe that, but imagine my surprise when I discovered that was not necessarily the standard of care um, that was applied by uh, corporations and, and by uh, um, uh, folks in leadership. Uh, and that was the early 80s. So Jackie Smith, if you're out there, uh, 
you are amazing and thank you for what you did and sorry that I didn't appreciate it more um, when I was going through that with you, but just a phenomenal person. And then if I could tell one more story, um, when I was, when I had this first leadership position that I talked about, I was working on a program for the army, um, as a contractor through a contract capability. And there was a, a colonel who did a pretty significant technical scrub of the effort because we were behind schedule, the big we were behind schedule. And my particular unit was, and I don't say this because I, out of arrogance, but we had managed to maintain our schedule. We worked really hard. Um, we were all young, younger employees. And so we really felt like we were obligated to, to do what we had committed to do. And so I went through a really tough scrub because he didn't give anybody a pass. And he ended up writing me a personal note just to thank me for the clear, the clarity I had about the vision and how hard he could tell we were working and the fact that we were willing to ask the tough questions and raise issues as we found them, as opposed to just letting risk snowball to the end of the project. And lo and behold, um, he became one of my mentors. I ended up going to work in government for the army and he ended up being a, a, a three-star CIO. And he mentored me probably for about 20 years of my career. But again, I'll just point out that, you know, for me, a, a, a bird colonel 06, when you're 23 years old, is pretty close to God. And the fact that he invested in me at that level, even though he gave me a hard scrub, but then sent me a note telling me how much he appreciated my work and the hard work of the team, um, just really invested in me to invest back in their program. And we ended up having a really long-term uh, and very healthy mentorship relationship. We ended up co-writing, um, co uh, co-chairing a panel for the National Academy of Sciences. So uh, Bill Campbell, if you're out there, another amazing example of uh, somebody who invested from a sponsorship and mentorship perspective that I can't say enough good things. And thank you, thank you, thank you. So Don, you've, what obstacles and challenges did you encounter from a personal level? I, you tell such great stories about how, how somebody helped you see oh, the way, but, you know, did, did you have to personally make some changes in the way that you approach things over time? Uh, absolutely. One is experience and is a great teacher. Uh, people don't believe it now, but I'm an incredible introvert and very shy. And you can't hope to lead if you won't open your mouth. And I will say that throughout my career, I had a number of folks, Jackie and, and Bill Campbell being two, who were introverts likewise and could see that in me. And so really would go out of their way to draw me out in conversations. And so, and then, you know, one other person that I'll talk about, Stephanie O'Sullivan, uh, you know, most recently the PDD and I, but somebody that I consider a friend and a mentor to this day, brought me into her office and said, even a decade ago, you need to talk more because you're making leaps that the rest of us could benefit by you talking through how you got there, as opposed to just assuming that other people in the room know, know how you arrived. And so it's something that I've, um, I'll say, worked on my entire career is, you know, to, to take my place at the table and own it because my natural inclination is to reticence. And of course, everybody would understand this. And people have invested in me throughout my career. I do things like this because I think it's important, but it also stretches me even to this day. 
And I think I wouldn't have been here if people just didn't insist that I do those kinds of things, that I stand up and give the briefing, that I grab the table. And if I could, one more observation, what I tell my folks is don't make the boss run the meeting. It's our responsibility as participants in a meeting to bring value and not just rely on the person sitting in the chair to carry every piece of the meeting. You're there for a reason. It's not to be an observer. It's to be a participant and impart the particular um, views and values that you bring that are uniquely your own. And so I think there's a lot of kind of checking out in a meeting. And if you think the meeting is something that you should check out of, you probably shouldn't go. Um, so when you go to a meeting, and I learned that early, early on, when you go to a corporate board, they expect you to say, have something to, to contribute, not just, you know, take notes and uh, uh, listen. So it works both ways. It's um, contributing what you bring that is uniquely yours in every circumstance. I'm speaking with Dawn Myricks, former Deputy Director of CIA, Director of Science and Technology. After the break, we'll discuss the effects of leadership on culture. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Don Myrick, former Deputy Director of the CIA, Directorate of Science and Technology. Don, earlier we were talking about leadership, and we talked a little bit about culture, but what do you believe is leadership and the relationship leadership has on culture? How does it affect it? How does it change it? <laughs> I, I love this question because I, I am really, really passionate about the energy that it takes to lead and to create the culture that you want to be a part of. So thank you for this, giving me a platform to talk about this. I think that um, leadership so impacts culture. If you're the kind of leader that shuts down conversation that says, no, you're wrong, or it can only be your idea, or it's not a good one, or a micromanager, you get the culture that you help create. And I would go into the office every morning and tell the staff, we create our culture every day, particularly in a front office, because if you are um, coming down on people, if you're not encouraging, if you're, you know, crying about the bureaucracy or isn't this stupid, then you encourage that behavior around you. And are bureaucracy is hard? Yes. But what can they accomplish? Right. There's a reason that we choose to be part of big bureaucracies. And so every day we talked about how we were going to create the culture of the organization from the top down. You know, there's a great quote, fish rots from its head down. So I think that's absolutely the case. And it was my job and my immediate staff's job to come in, into the office every day with a positive attitude, certain that we could impact mission in a positive way, certain that we could impact our people's lives in a positive way. And that was our job. That was job one. And not to be part of the stone throwers or the, isn't this stupid or I don't like this. Um, and that's not to say to be Pollyanna-ish about it. The things that we thought were wrong with the process, it was our responsibility to try and take on or to at least raise to a level that we were a part of a solution. But I absolutely believe that uh, good leadership can create culture that changes the world. Um, that was always what I strived to do in every job that I had. And so far as I can tell, it seemed to work. <laughs> At least that was my experience. Well, you, there's that famous quote from uh, uh, Peter Drucker, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So um, do you see that as being um, a pivotal a success factor uh, when leaders create that kind of environment to create that environment to reach the successful goals? Absolutely. 
particularly and probably true in every organization, but I haven't thought about it because I haven't been asked to, to lead in organizations that are not principally technical um, in, in that sense. But if you can't have hard conversations, if I can't go to the board, for example, and say, you made a mistake in your third derivative in this equation. Oh, by the way, I can't do these things anymore. But it's more the example of if we can't have the hard conversations and talk about risky business and disagree professionally and then work our way through all of those, then we should not be in a technical organization because at some point the speed of sound is the speed of sound and you can't change that for love nor money. And it's ridiculous to think that you can't call each other out on things that you see are absolutely not feasible or, you know, defy the laws of physics or uh, go against, you know, human nature in general or, or go against the culture to your point. Um, you can set big lofty aspirations, but if the culture's not willing to take that on, then it doesn't matter. So I think Peter Drucker had it exactly right. And I think particularly in technical and business organizations, if you can't have hard conversations, then I probably don't want to be a shareholder. You know, in your bio, your LinkedIn bio, you say that uh, you are a leader in technology to ensure democracy's long-term competitiveness. Um, you know, what is it like being a intelligence community tech leader today? I mean, you just kind of opened the door a little bit on this. Tell me, what are some of the challenges? You, you talked about the speed of light, and but yet, you know, taking on new technologies and changing. Yeah. Um, so I think we got to rethink um, how we approach this. And I think we got to rethink this at a national level. And I'm a part of a couple of groups that are trying to do this. I would characterize myself as a connector. And having, if you look at my bio, I've, I've served a number of different places inside and outside of government with a common theme of a problem solver using technology and working with great teams. So, you know, my goal in that highfalutin statement in my, <laughs> my LinkedIn bio really is the I want to be part of helping craft new conversations and new kinds of relationships. So there's much deeper dialogue. So there's much faster understanding on both sides of why, you know, the government acts this way or why industry behaves this way, because I think that's our superpower as a nation. We've created this environment where our economic successes have been world changing and it was because the government managed, however ham-fisted they might have been, to create an environment where those things could happen, where it could flourish. And I think because of the, the reasons that you mentioned, the, the speed of change, um, you know, kind of the democratization of technology, that we've really got to rethink what these relationships are like. So I don't worry so much, and this sounds crazy from a technologist, I don't worry so much about Tech, technology, I worry more about the public-private partnerships and relationships that have fueled for literally hundreds of years our ability to be successful from an ideals and values perspective. And I think we fundamentally have to rethink that. And so this is a bit of a platform for, for me, but you know, Abraham Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, for the people. And I think for too long, um, people view DC and, and others as the for the peace, but not the of the and by the, right? And, and you can't have relationship based on once every two years or once every four years, you read a paper about what's coming up on your ballot or, you know, what somebody stands for, and then you go check a block and you fulfilled your obligation as a member of democracy, right? 
Um, so I think that we have to rethink fundamentally these relationships and understand that we have to communicate much closer to the speed of change than we are doing today. And so that's, I'm trying to, you know, in my own small way, make connections, but also help inform thinking about how you do that at a larger scale, because, you know, Dawn can do so much, but all of us together can do so much more. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on both levels, which is like, how do you do that systematically? And that changes the relationship be, between public and private sector. And also how, you, you know, put my money where my mouth is and do it individually as well. So this is one of those areas that um, for whatever time I have left in this part of my professional career, I'm really passionate about creating bridges and conversations and deeper understanding across the board so that we are not um, at each other's throats, but actually figuring out how to come together and overall continue to promote the ideals and values that we stand for as a Republican democracy. You know, you and I are about this. Yeah. Uh, you and I are about the same age. And mm-hmm. um, when I started in tech, um, it felt like and I was so excited to work with the public sector. And I have my whole career because, you know, who doesn't want to help catch the bad guy or get little lady checks? I mean, you, you get to, to be part of a mission. But in in, in the 80s, the, the government kind of had a much bigger hand in controlling the clock speed of technology. Today, you brought up the relationships and it's kind of changed hands a little bit. Now, the uh, VC community uh, tech is investing more in tomorrow's uh, capabilities than maybe the government is. And you can't pick up a newspaper without reading about the concern of the technology race and where China is. They're, they're investing big uh, dollars and, and making sure that their, their kids start uh, learning how to program out of, you know, out of a, a elementary school. Do, do, what, how do you feel about this race with technology with China? And, and is there something that we should be doing different here as a nation, you know, pu- public or private sector, to, to keep our competitive advantage? Uh, that that's a great question. So, um, do I worry about China? Uh, I don't think they're ten feet tall, um, but I do worry about more the lack of understanding um, on both sides, public and private, in terms of what's possible and how we we could best work together. And I think that's why I'm so passionate. Look, um, what got us here was that that sense of responsibility, social responsibility, values responsibility. And that was something that was um, held as common or roughly common across our uh, uh, democratic republic. And I think we have to get back to having those kinds of conversations. And that's why I'm really, really big on how do we morph these relationships. So I think there are two keys to that. I think one is um, personal responsibility And I think that applies at every level. So the example that I'll use is, and I'll pick on myself, right? If when I'm doing my tax returns, my whole game is to figure out how I can get more money back than I deserve, because, you know, that that means I win, then I'm not acting responsibly in terms of my responsibility as a member of our society, right? And so I think we've gotten to the point where that, and, and somehow that's deemed to be okay, right? And so... I think there's personal responsibility for each of us that we must be engaged and we must be doing things to the best of our ability, not just to the letter of the law, but to the intent 
of the ideal or the value that's trying to be articulated. And then I think there's another piece which we have to get better at collectively, which is, and I'll call it radical transparency. I think the Washington Post just did a really interesting article on how the IC has really stepped forward in terms of um, sharing what they're seeing vis-a-vis -vis Russia and some other situations that they were actually complimentary about what I see happening. I think it's that's exactly right. And I also see on the on the private sector side, right, that if there was more transparency about, for example, what the financial services are seeing in terms of cybersecurity threats and attacks, they would be better prepared as an entity as opposed to each one of them trying to do it by themselves. So I think there's lots of applications of this personal responsibility as well as the radical transparency. And I'll uh, I'll close with one more um, quote from somebody that I really, really enjoyed working with, Denny Blair, who was the DNI who actually brought me back to government, convinced me to come back to government 12 years ago. He, he said, we have to keep secrets, but that doesn't mean we need to be mysterious. And I think we all have to grapple with what that means. And then I think that turns into what does that mean in terms of our personal responsibility as members of a democratic republic? I'm speaking with Don Myricks, former Deputy Director of the CIA Director of Science and Technology. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Don Myricks, former Deputy Director of the CIA Director of Science and Technology. You know, Right now, we're facing so much change, and getting organizations to adopt change is always one of the biggest leadership challenges. How do you, you know, with technology in particular, how do you approach leading an organization to adopt change? <laughs> this is a great question and timely. While I was at the agency, we did the first reorganization ever of the S&T, a major one. Um, so first time in 57 years. Uh, there are still people that tell me how, how much I damage the organization. Um, but I will say that I think overall, <laughs> what we did is viewed was, was very much uh, favorably viewed by not only our organization, but the, the broader organization. I think what it takes is um, an agreed vision and a mission imperative. And we had that. We had some things that um, were challenges for us. And it was clear that maintaining, you know, our current marching order wasn't going to get us there. And oh, by the way, there are some leaders that come in and the first thing they do is is reorganize right because one of the things that does i don't know if you've ever kept fish bad analogy probably but because people aren't fish but you know when you introduce new fish in a fish tank an existing fish tank you move everything around so that the territorial fish have to reestablish territory which gives the new fish the opportunity to um eke out their claim as well so i'm not one of those kinds of people but as I watched what was happening and the challenges that we were seeing, and it was something that we talked a lot about as a leadership team, we couldn't scale given our current structures. We had more overhead than I think was warranted, and we had less worker bees than we needed in order to get real change accomplished at the speed of mission, let alone the speed of business. So uh, a, a small group of us, and I actually chartered an independent team because I didn't, I thought we were too close to it. And frankly, our operational requirements were such that I couldn't spend cycles on it, nor could my immediate leadership team. We, we, we chartered a small cross-functional group and said, here's the challenges we have. You know, is it a resource problem? Is it an organizational problem? Like everything's, it's, it's all white space. Pretend it's all white space. 
go look at the problem, even evaluate how we ask the questions because those can have bias and, and result in an outcome because you're looking for something. And so we, we basically put it on that team and it was a cross-functional, cross-organizational team. They did a 90-day study, which we held them to rigorously and they came back with a series of recommendations and we set about with leadership support to do those. And when they briefed out, they briefed out not just my leadership team, but they briefed out the rest of the organization's teams. And then they spent a lot of time in focus groups and with the people that were going to be impacted by the changes, both inside and outside of the organization to make sure they had a good beat and that people felt like they had been heard and their opinions were considered and incorporated into the recommendations of that 90 day study team. They did a fabulous job. They came out with very cogent, very pointed, you should do these things. They didn't tell us necessarily in detail how to do them, but they helped us rethink how we should be thinking about ourselves and how to position ourselves in terms of our relationship with our users and the people that we were supporting most closely. And once you get an agreed vision, then we went into ruthless execution. And so let me just give you timing on this because, um, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes timing's everything and sometimes you go in spite of the timing. But we did this and uh, the team finished up in September of 2018. Was that right before COVID hit? If I get the year right? Okay. And so we set a very aggressive schedule because the other thing that's really hard is when you're doing a, a restructure of that magnitude, you don't want people to be spending 18 months trying to figure out where their boxes go, right? It's very unsettling. You want to get them back to where, you know, back to, hey, this is where I belong. Here's, I know what my job is. I can contribute. Um, so we set a very aggressive schedule to be done in May of 2019. And then February of 2019 hit. And we were not all at work all of the time. February we were, 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so it was, we're one year off. <laughs> okay, sorry. So it was September of 2019 that they finished up the study. We started executing with the goal of being done in March or May and then COVID hit. And so um, I will say we were so far down the path and people were so um, committed to the fact that we needed to make some very fundamental changes to, to, to support mission and to mo make most effective use of all of our resources and our people that we had to keep going. And then racial unrest hit. And then really, really um, interesting elections hit, right? And so we ended up pushing, uh, we called it IOC, but we ended up pushing the date for this to take effect but we were so far in that we had to keep going. And so we did, and there was no pushback. We had to go slower because we wanted to make sure that we brought people along and we needed to do the communications required. And because not everybody was at work all of the time, we had to take that into account. So we slowed it down a bit, but only it was gated only by the rate at which, which we could communicate with the entire staff, not by any lack of commitment to getting to the end point. So, we spent, you asked about techniques, we had all hand, virtual all hands every week. For the people that couldn't come to work, we had um, phone calls at least once a month, the people that were you know, high risk, um, and we arranged that so that it was consistent with cover and uh, protecting the operational security of our folks. We did weekly newsletters, we did weekly call chains, this is a very large organization. The amount of energy that my leadership team put into making sure that everybody got brought along as we did this significant change was 
essential and incredible. And you have to have that level of commitment if you're going to have that level of change. And they were amazing. And I think everybody benefited um, across the organization from the changes that were made. Now, I, I can't imagine being a senior uh, official at the CIA through all that, through the election, through pandemic, through you, you faced your team faced some pretty impossible odds. How did you keep them, uh, you know, jazzed and focused on, you said, ruthless execution? So how did you get them to, to focus that, that they can do it? Um, so first of all, I'll say that, you know, agency people are amazing. <laughs> um, and I've worked at some powerful tech companies. So I, I, I think I have the background to actually, it's, it's, it's not unlimited. It's, but I, I have enough that I think I have the background to say that uh, uh, they have an amazing, uh, sorry, Royal, we slips in a, a, an occasional um, amazing workforce. And once people are convinced that there's a mission imperative and you can't take them off of it. I mean, it was really, I don't feel like I had, I wasn't pushing them. They were pulling. And that's such a different place to be in terms of psychic energy as a leadership, as a, as a leader and as part of a leadership team. They were the ones that said, we got to keep going. We can't go back. We can't say, oh, just kidding. You know, we can put this off for 18 months. I mean, the next thing that happened, they would be like, okay, so this just underscores how important it is that we finish this and we do it expeditiously because we know that this is what we need to do to get to the mission that we need to be successful in the future. So I, I can't, you know, I, I, I got to work with incredibly smart people that were convinced of the, 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 the vision and the importance of our mission and being there to get it done. And, you know, they were just as creative as I was in terms of everybody did it in their own style, but we also had a culture that said that was absolutely okay. And we were just relentless about communication and execution. If we did something, if we said we were going to do something, by gosh, we got it done. If we said we were going to commit to doing something, um, you know, or getting out of a business area, by gosh, we did it. And that was them. That was a credit to the team had a vision. And it, it, it really, we had skip meetings. You know, we talked about, I met with the, the second level managers below my direct reports. Imagine that in most corporations. If I said, hey, I'm going to talk to your people uh, every other week. Um, a lot of folks would be threatened by that. Not my team. They were like, yep, sounds good. Yeah, let's make sure that everybody's getting what they need. So it was all about, um, everybody was leaning in. It was it was absolutely phenomenal. I can't say enough good things about it. Um, and, and we created the culture that will endure as a result. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for government executives in the aftermath of COVID-19 and this just this complete craziness with, you know, what happened uh, post-election, uh, you know, social and unjust, you know, what, what, what do you think is going to be the next challenge? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I think it's about finding and pr promoting the new norm. And that, that that's intentionally vague because I think the answer differs from organization to organization. Um, I think the more you can treat people like they're uh, sentient, smart, um, free will beings who care about the mission and who feel personal responsibility 
you know, it just makes the job so much easier. But I, even I can't predict what the new normal will look like. We did some things um, organizationally. We did a lot more meetings virtually than I'd ever. If somebody had said to me, you're going to be doing this virtually next year, I would have laughed. Like, no, that'll never happen, right? I mean, it just that, you know, virtualizing some of the things that we did, um, from a security standpoint, you know, that would never have been permitted. But in the face of trying to get mission done in the circumstances, we were allowed to experiment, not more than allowed, we were encouraged to experiment. And of course, being scientists and engineers, that was the, you know, get out of jail free card. And I don't mean that in terms of we were being foolish or anything else, right? But we were given permission to explore things that heretofore had been, um, something that we wouldn't even try to start a conversation on. So how we interacted with students, how we interacted with our own folks um, in, in order to make sure that they were fully cognizant of what decisions were being made vis-a-vis -vis COVID and, and uh, you know, the reorganization and other things. That was all um, new. And we got great organizational support to do those things. And we were also very circumspect in not blowing past, you know, security or operational security concerns as we did that. So as a result, when we ran an experiment, if it went well, then we were allowed to do the next one. And so I think this, th there's got to be room. And as a leader, you've got to create the space for people to take smart risks and learn. And sometimes they'll make a mistake. And that's not life threatening if they take a smart risk and encourage them. And, and then if we learn something that we can do, then how do you leverage that into the next thing? And I think that is the big challenge, you know, from a scientific engineering standpoint of what does that new norm look like? What kinds of risks can we take? What kinds of things can we not do? Um, I think that each major entity is going to have to figure that out. And I talk to friends in industry all the time, CEOs and others, and that looks different from company to company, from vertical to vertical, from culture to culture. And I think that is going to be the new challenge for CEOs in the near term, um, because there's there's just so much more that's possible. And that also, you know, from my old job means that there's more of an attack surface available as well. So you just got to be smart about it. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. Today, I'm talking with Don Myricks, former director, deputy director of the CIA Directorate of Science and Technology. Next, we'll find out. Don's advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Don Myricks, former Deputy Director of the CIA Director of Science and Technology. Don, there's so many articles coming out. Uh, these days about empathetic leadership. People are tired. There's talk about the great resignation. I, I, I've, a lot of, I've talked to many tech CEOs and they're seeing like a 30% attrition rate right now. Do, how do you lead with empathy and, and what do you think about that? Yeah, I think um, you're exactly right. I think empathy is people want to be engaged and they want to feel like their leadership knows them personally. And that's more than, you know, you write good code, right? Ask about your kids, you know, how your ailing parents are doing, whatever the thing is. And so I think as I thought about this and went through the whole COVID virtualization experience, I think empathy is even more important now than it was in the past. And so what I've ended up on is sort of a strategy, personal strategy is you can do a lot of business 
and a Zoom call, or sorry, I'm not endorsing that, but just, you know, pick your favorite virtualization uh, framework. What you can't get is that personal piece. And even, even over a call, a, a virtual call, right, you're only seeing part of the person. And what I've learned over the years is you can read so much by a person's body language, even if they're not speaking, right? If they've withdrawn from the conversation because they're offended, if they've withdrawn from the conversation because they're bored, if they've withdrawn from the conversation because they've said they're a piece and they don't care what anybody else has to say, you can read that in a room. That's very difficult to read, particularly if people have gone off of video, right? Just to say bandwidth or whatever, or, you know, whatever they're eating their lunch, whatever the thing is, right? And so I think what you have to then do, and my personal strategy has been go out of your way then to figure out when you can go grab coffee with the person or have breakfast with the person and have that part of the conversation. Because I think um, you get so much more collectively when you have that level of connection as well. And, you know, the example um, that I, that I uh, think about for that is if somebody says, you know, um, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to be busy tomorrow. If I don't know that their parents are, you know, need elder care, I may attribute to them, you know, oh, they don't want to be part of this. Or I mean, you know, it's not convenient for me to change my time, whatever it is, right? Um, because we're all busy and we're all overcommitted uh, generally. But if I know about them or if I know they have a two-year-old that's got a particular health problem or, you know, that they themselves need, you know, knee surgery or whatever it is, I bring a whole different understanding and it's not all about work, right? It's not all about, you know, the end item. I'm actually thinking about that. Oh, I should, that's a cue. I should, you know, send them a note or say, hey, can I, you know, can I do anything? Can I meet you at the park? Uh, you know, can I meet you for coffee or whatever? Um, I think it's even more important and it's harder because the virtualization is the easy button, but what is what it doesn't do is address the relationship piece that's so important. And one of the things I always told my, my team is, I don't want just your head, I want your heart because that means you're all in, right? You're helping me solve the problem. You're helping me figure out how to address the issue. Um, you know, if I get your head, I'll get your lips, but maybe not your actions. So that's what I meant by head and heart. And so I think you, as a, as a new leader, as a current leadership team, you really have to look for those opportunities to do the one-on-one -on -one in person sharing a meal, just talking about how life is going. And I think that's really, really important for the future. And it's going to change the way, I hope it changes the way leadership think about allocating their time. I'll do one more personal vignette. I block my mornings now that I'm doing, you know, I'm doing a bunch of different things, but I block my mornings for the pop-up breakfast or coffee, because that way, if I see somebody that's struggling or I just need, feel like I need to collect, connect, I, I, it's from eight to 10, I can do tomorrow or the day after, not three weeks from Friday, right? And so I think it, it makes me think differently about how I allocate time on my calendar. And you know what, if I get two hours to think in the morning, worse things could happen. So it just makes me more available for that personal connection. Don, let's take a step back for a second. Where'd you grow up and how'd you end up with decades of dedicated service to our nation? <laughs> yeah, um, so I love people and I love to solve problems. I mean, if that, you know, that's kind of like, I'll say my two defining characteristics. I love making the internet accessible for my mom, right? And my mom's not a stupid person, but, you know, having her able to see pictures of the grandkids or Skype 
uh, with the family or those sorts of things that like that's a quality of life thing that I think is a really valuable contribution. And the person that I guess I modeled myself on without recognizing it again at the time was my dad. Um, very, very, very uh, personable guy, just a sweetheart, good to the bone, kind of one of those kinds of people, very introverted, but um, you know, a good sense of humor, uh, just, just really, really cared for his family and, the, and his friends. And he worked early on, um, he did telemetry for Mercury and Gemini back in the day when, you know, computer science wasn't a thing. Um, he was an electrical engineer who happened to know something about how you made uh, um, transistors work or uh, uh, relays way, way, way back in the day. And I just was so impressed that he was doing this work. He felt very personally responsible for the safety of the astronauts, the early astronaut teams, um, the, the terrible fire that Des Grissom died in. Uh, you know, he mourned that, uh, and I saw that up close and personal. And so I think um, those are the kinds of things that I saw in my childhood that I thought, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. So hopefully, Dad, you're proud of me. Don, can you describe your career path? I mean, if a listener out there wanted to, you know, follow in a career path, become an executive in intelligence community, what advice would you have? Uh, so I will say that when I interviewed with John Brennan for the job I'm in now, um, he, the first question he asked me, he looked at my resume and it's, I'm on LinkedIn. So he looked at my resume and say, said, um, so it looks like to me, you can't hold a job. And I laughed out loud because I say that about myself. Uh, and I think he thought he was gonna see if he could rattle me at the beginning of the interview on what I did with it. And, and actually it just put me at ease because it was, it, it was a great observation. I think my motivation has always been, and I tell um, the next generation, do what you love with a great team and you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that defined how I thought about it uh, as, as a young person, uh, as a young engineer. So if you look at that, I always felt like if I wasn't growing or if I wasn't compelled by the mission or if I didn't respect my boss, that was on me. I had to go find something else to do, right? It's not, it's not my work's responsibility to keep me entertained, um, you know, and, and frankly, um, you know, my development is, is my responsibility. Um, I think work can help with that, but nobody's ever going to be more interested in my development than me. And relying on somebody else to do it is probably not a winning strategy. So that's what I tell young people is like, own it, own what you want to do, know what presses your buttons. And so if you look at my career path, every time I changed jobs, it was because I either felt like I wasn't growing or I, I wasn't particularly happy. I, I felt like I, I didn't have the boss that I needed um, or that the mission was, you know, not as compelling because it felt like we were, you know, doing the same things. Every single one of those job changes was related to something like that. And I think it's been an incredible um, experience. The other thing I think that's interesting is uh, and that I tell young people is you should interview your boss because you're going to spend a lot of time with them. So it's not a one-way conversation. And also that if you make a mistake, it's not irrevocable. You can learn just as much from a bad boss as you can from a good boss if you have the right mindset. And, uh, you know, learn what you can and, and, and make the move when it makes sense to do so. And you also then at that point develop really robust networks. And I'll just say that I haven't had to look for a job myself in a very long time because those relationships, technologists in particular, maybe everybody, 
but um, you know, I can call somebody I haven't worked for worked with for 20 years and they'll take the call because they they know I'm not frivolous, but they also know what my work ethic is and how I like to do things. And you can maintain those without a lot of maintenance, um, you know, but the ability to call somebody and say, hey, can you help me? Or do you have a suggestion? Or is there somebody that's doing this kind of work that you could recommend? Um, that, you know, if, if, if every day is a joy, um, it just permeates your life. And if every day is a drag, I, I suspect it permeates your life as well. So I just wanted to be joyful and graceful um, and just love what I did every day. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Don Myricks. Don, I just want to thank you for your years of public service and your dedication to this nation's competitiveness on the technology world stage. I also want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey. Thank you. It's been a great privilege and pleasure. And thanks for letting me have a, a, a spa day for the mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.